You're listening to Theology for the Rest of Us. You've got tough questions. We'll try to give you easy answers. Now, here's your host, Kenny Ortiz. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. This is Theology for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Kenny Ortiz, coming at you from the beautiful metropolis known as the Twin Cities here in Minnesota. So glad to have you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. In this episode, I'm going to answer the question, should Christians believe in evolution? Before we get to the content of this episode, I want to give you a quick reminder about our website, theologyfortherestofus.com. That's where you can find all of our old archived episodes, all the show notes, resources, recommended books, blogs, and a variety of other things that could be helpful to you as you seek to do more diligent study in different topics related to theology. I want to encourage you to check that out. Also, I want to encourage you to check it out because... Um, now that I've got a variety of, of episodes or, or a large number of episodes, they don't all appear in all of the podcast players. So some podcast players uh, cap you at 200 episodes, some at 100, some at 50. If you're using the Apple podcast player, uh, you should be go should be able to go back to uh, 299 episodes is sort of the, the default that we have set up. But uh, if you have a different podcast player, you, you shouldn't be, you won't be able to do that. So I want to encourage you go to the website and go check out uh, all of our episodes. And then also you can search by topic. You can pop in any topic you want, um, and all of the episodes related to that topic will appear on the site. So again, check it out: theologyfortherestofus.com. All right, let's get to the topic at hand: Should Christians believe in evolution? Um, I'm going to just throw back to episode 247 for a moment. If you've already listened to that episode, then you you know what it's about. The age of the universe, the age of the earth, and the five uh, prominent views. Um, actually, I missed a view that I probably should have, that I should have tackled. Um, there are actually six views. Uh, I'm not going to go back and edit that episode and add the six. I'll just cover it here. Um, in essence, in, t- in episode 247, I covered... Five views. The first was secular worldview or secular evolution, which all Christians should completely reject. That's the idea that uh, there is no creator and everything came from a big bang, a big bang, and all humans uh, evolved from a single cell organism. In fact, all of life that is on planet Earth today all evolved from uh, a single celled organism. That all you know, primates, apes, and, and humans, we all evolved from a common ancestor, uh, things of that nature. Um, that is a secular evolution. Again, we should all completely reject that. The other four views that I covered, one was the gap theory, the idea that Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 1, talks about God creating everything. Get, then there's a large gap. God lets it sort of sit for a while. And then there's the six days of creation where God brings everything into order. Uh, there's the metaphoric view of Genesis chapter 1, where the six days of creation are uh, not actual six days, but they are six ages or six time periods uh, representing long periods of time, and that the word day is sort of metaphoric, and therefore, uh, you know, God is creating everything over a long period of time. Uh, metaphoric, or the Genesis 1 is, again, metaphoric. Uh, another view is the historical creationist view, uh, that is asserted by 
uh, John Salehammer in his book Genesis Unbound. And in, in episode 247, I talked about how this is a view I'm starting to embrace. And I, th- I think it makes sense. That is the idea that uh, when the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that the, be- the word beginning is a long period of time, that God is creating lots of things over a long period of time. And then we have the literal six days where God is bringing to order and and preparing the earth you know, and creating the environment, cultivating it, making it perfect for human inhabitants. Um, that is sort of, you know, that is the historical creationist perspective. So those are sort of the four views of, or sorry, those are the three old earth views. And then, of course, there's the young earth view. That is the idea that the six days of creation at Genesis chapter one are literal solar days, you know, a literal 24-hour day. There are six literal days. That God creates, and then on the sixth day, God creates Adam and Eve, and that is when the sort of the genealogy of humanity begins. And uh, from the genealogy, ge- genealogies, if you take them very literally and in a more tight fashion, you come up with the Earth being approximately six or seven thousand years old. And the young Earth creationist says the Earth is young, meaning the Earth is not millions and millions of years old, but the Earth is just a few thousand years old. All of the other views say that the earth is, you know, millions of years old. The, the Obviously, the metaphoric creation view would say the earth is you know, millions and millions of years old. The gap theory would say the earth is millions and millions of years old. The historical creationist view would say it's millions and millions of years old. The young earth view is the only one that is different than that. That is the uh, view, again, that would say literal six-day creation, the earth is only a few thousand years old. And as I said in episode 247, uh, that is sort of the view that is being greatly uh, embraced and defended by many evangelical Christians and many fundamentalistic Christians. And this particular debate has become very contentious over the last 100 to 150 years. And there are many Christians saying it's young earth or nothing. If you don't believe the young earth, then you are compromising the gospel, compromising the integrity of the scriptures. You're compromising the inerrancy of scriptures. There is no fidelity and you ought to be called on the carpet and called the heretic for it. That is sort of what is, that is, that has sort of become the ideology and the approach of many evangelical Christians. Okay. Now there is a sixth view again that I didn't cover in 247. I'll cover here. And that is the idea of theistic evolution. That is that you know, we should believe in evolution and that God guided evolution. That We did indeed evolve over the course of millions and millions of years, but that God guided the process of evolution. And I think there are some great flaws to that view or to saying that, and I'll get to that in just a second. First, let me give you the answer I give whenever someone asks me, do you believe in evolution? I immediately respond by always asking, well, what do you mean by evolution, because there are different understandings of different forms of evolution. Now, whenever people are talking about the origin of species, they are typically referring to two different forms of evolution. And again, I think it's important to to bring a distinction between the two. There is microevolution, and then there's macroevolution. And, and sometimes. Some people who aren't real scientists that are just sort of throwing out stuff because maybe they're hostile toward the gospel or they're hostile toward Christianity or the Bible. 
And they throw out the word evolution, and they themselves may not fully understand the concept. And so there needs to be sort of a mini education, or, or at minimum, there needs to be some clarification that takes place. The two different forms of evolution that people are typically referring to are either microevolution or macroevolution. So whenever people ask me, do you believe in evolution? I go, well, it depends on what type of evolution you're talking about. I, I certainly believe in microevolution, but I reject macroevolution. Uh, let me explain the difference between these two if, if you're not familiar. Microevolution uh, is the concept that living creatures will vary or evolve. They will change from generation to generation within their own kind so that you know within certain kinds of animals or within families of types of animals, you will have different animals, different creatures uh, evolving from generation to generation. Um, so an example would be, let's say, dogs. Uh, we, you know, a few thousand years ago here on planet Earth, we may have only had one kind of dog-like creature. They may have been a dog-like creature that lived thousands of years ago. And that particular dog-like creature, over the course of the, the generations, over the course of thousands of years, have, has potentially evolved or changed to the point where we now have a variety of species that all came from that same ancestor. So you may have coyotes and different types of wolves and you have dogs and all the different types of breeds of dogs that we have today. And they all have the same genetic material, the gene pool from which those animals are, are being created is all the same. It's a shared kind of genetic material or genetic code. It's, it's, it's a sort of a gene pool that they all share. And it is expected that animals within that kind will vary or evolve. And this is something that actually can be proven. It's been observed. It's been documented. I actually find it to be fascinating and super cool that over the course of time, from generation to generation, or over the course of multiple generations, that individual creatures or individual animals may shift and change and evolve within their own kind. Th that is scientific fact. And again, like I said, I think it's super cool and it's fascinating. And lots of biologists and paleontologists and other types of scientists have been able to observe these things even in a very short period of time. You know, we'll, we'll see animals being transported from one region to another. And literally within a generation or two, we see an incredible evolution of that particular kind of animal. The animals change and evolve, but they never change kinds of animal. That They may become a different species. There may be different parts of the genetic material that are accentuated or amplified, but they never change the genetic material. Another example would be bears. You know, thousands of years ago, we may have only had one kind of bear. And within that kind of bear was the genetic code to make all different types of bears. And over the course of thousands of years, within that kind, there's been some evolution where we now have all different types of bears. We have black bears and polar bears, all different types of bears on planet Earth, but all of them come from that one ancestor, that one kind of bear. And in essence, what's happening within microevolution 
is you have a kind of animal that has the genetic makeup for all those different types of bears. All the genetic code, you know, for every kind of bear is in that one type of bear over the course of the next few thousand years that the bears that we have alive today will begin to, you know, evolve again within their own kind, they will begin to evolve and we'll probably have new types of bears arrive on the scene in the future. So what causes this phenomenon that we call microevolution? Well, a lot of scientists use the term natural selection, but I think that term can be quickly and easily misunderstood. So let me sort of just kind of break it down in a, an overly elementary fashion. Let's say there's a bunch of wolves that live in a particular forest somewhere in the world, and there happens to be some wolf-eating bear, right? I don't know. I'm making this up. But let's say there's just some wolf-eating bear in that forest. Well, the bear is sneaking up on wolves and attacking them and eating them. And the only wolves that can get away are the ones that can hear it. So the bear can't sneak up on the ones that have better hearing. So the bear sneaks up on a pack of wolves and the only ones that can hear it they hear the bear, so they take off running, and then the ones that can't hear are the ones that the, the bear catches and eats. Well, the only wolves that are left living are the ones that can hear really well. So what happens is those wolves that can hear really well, they have babies together, and the next generation now has stronger hearing because all of them are getting genetic code from the wolves that happen to have had the best hearing. So it's the you know the best of the best with the best hearing are the ones that are surviving having babies. So now the next generation has this part of the genetic material being amplified or accentuated. There's a particular concentration of traits and strengths that are now causing these particular you know animals, these particular wolves in my random example, to now have better hearing. So you keep, you know, you go on a few generations, eventually what's going to happen, you're going to have a you're going to have an animal that has much stronger hearing than they did before. Now, let's say a couple generations later, those bears have learned to be really quiet. They're sneaking up on these wolves, and the wolves can hear them, and they take off running. Well, the bear is going to chase them, and the slowest wolves are the ones that are going to get eaten by the bear because the bear is going to catch the slow ones, and the fast ones are going to get away. And so eventually what will happen will be left is wolves that are really fast and they can hear and they'll have babies. And over the course of multiple generation of these wolves, again, in my made up, uh, my, you know, my made up example here, the only ones going to be left are wolves that can hear really well and that are really, really fast. So over the course of multiple generations and even over the course of thousands of thousands of years, the circumstance of nature will dictate certain traits to kind of come to the forefront. So within the genetic code, within the genetic material, certain strengths are going to be concentrated, certain traits are going to be amplified or accentuated. The the genetic code may get reordered or may or or may get uh, shifted to some extent, but the essence of the nature of that animal never actually changes. The the, the genetic information needed to make that kind of animal doesn't ever actually change. It just gets reordered, so to speak. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm using a very simple, very elementary example. I'm sure there are people out there listening to this that are much more scientific than I am. And you're thinking, Kenny, that is such a stupid elementary example. That's not precise at all. And I, I recognize that. I'm just, I'm just trying to make it, I'm just trying to make it simple for those of us that are not, you know, vocational scientists. Okay. 
the bottom line is if someone asks me, do you believe in evolution? I'm always going to want to bring some clarity and say, certainly I believe that animals evolve and that as the genetic code gets rearranged or adapts from generation to generation, we do see adaptations and and certainly it does seem like animals have different traits throughout the course of generations which is a form of evolution that we would call microevolution but i reject the the darwinian model that all creatures evolved from a single cell organism that's wrapped up in the idea of macroevolution Macroevolution, of course, being the idea that there's so much adaptation that eventually you get completely different types of creatures and animals all together, not just different species within the same kind. In essence, there are chunks of the scientific community telling us that microevolution happens so much, so many of these small changes within kinds of animals, that eventually those kinds of animals become different animals altogether eventually but in all reality there is simply no evidence for this whatsoever it's never been observed it's never been proved let's go back to the dog example dogs may vary within their kind right the the original dog-like creature becomes the wolf or the coyote or the poodle right but but it will never lead to an animal that is not like a dog. The genetic code of that dog-like creature will always lead to other animals and other species that are in the same genetic family of that of a dog. It will never lead to something that's completely different. It's not possible. Now, quite often, whenever you challenge a, a secular evolutionist, someone who embraces uh, macro evolution or when someone you know when you, when you challenge someone that, that embraces this you know naturalistic darwinian approach to evolution they'll typically say well of course we can't observe it because it happens over such a long period of time it takes millions and millions of years they'll say things like you see um if if we can observe such rapid changes within kinds of animals you know, in microevolution, in just a few hundred years or just a few thousand years or even within a course of 20 or 30 years, which we have observed, what, what can happen? Can you just imagine what might happen over the course of a million years? But again, that is an assumption. It's not been proven. It's a theory. It's assumed. You're not basing it on something that's been observed, which is what scientists are supposed to base their theories upon. So now what we have is chunks of the scientific community that are teaching this naturalistic Darwinian idea of macroevolution and teaching it as if it is an absolute fact when it is not an absolute fact. Or they're teaching it as if it's a theory that's been based upon or built upon trends that have been observed and tested when in fact those trends that they're basing it upon have not been observed and not been tested. Nowhere in the scientific community has anyone ever observed macroevolution and neither has there ever been any evidence that would lead us to believe that macroevolution is a plausible explanation for the origins of humanity. Now, in addition to all of that, there is another component to macroevolution that is missing that is just shocking that so many intelligent people are willing to simply overlook 
and that is the introduction of new material. All microevolution that we've observed, that we can test, that we can examine, is simply a reordering or an amplification or an accentuation of pre-existing genetic information that's already there. And every example I've already given you, you, know, you can kind of get the point. The information to make a poodle would have already been in that different dog-like creature thousands of years ago. It took thousands of years of genetic uh, you know, uh, rearranging and microevolution and breeding that eventually would lead to the poodle. It wasn't new information right, being added to the mix. That information, all the genetic material to make a poodle was already pre-existing in that previous ancestor, that other dog-like creature. In order to get a poodle from its dog-like ancestor, you only needed the same genetic information that's already in the genetic material to be rearranged, so to speak, right? To, to use a very simple uh, you know, elementary way of explaining it, portions of the code was turned on and portions of the code was turned off or portions of the code were shifted. But there was no new genetic information being added. The genome of that dog-like creature thousands of years ago had within it the ability, the wherewithal, to become a poodle. But in order to believe that all creatures on planet Earth came from one single-celled organism that existed three or four million years ago, you'd have to believe in the idea that new genetic information can spontaneously add itself into a genetic code or into a pool of genes. And whenever you ask scientists, why do you believe this? You get, you get a variation of answers. Some scientists say, well, we may not have evidence for it yet, but we're eventually going to have evidence for it. Just give us a few, you know, a few more years, you know, look how far we've come, you know, in, in two or three or 500 years, we'll have the evidence for it. Okay. But, but you don't have the evidence for today. Well, no, we don't. Okay, but so you're believing a theory for which there is no evidence and you are assuming that it is a foregone conclusion that you will indeed eventually find evidence for what you are currently espousing. And then I often respond by saying, but isn't there a reasonable chance or isn't, it, isn't there a plausible chance that, that at some point in the future we might find some evidence that's actually, that's actually contrary to what you're currently asserting? It just doesn't make sense to be so gung-ho and to sort of go all in on a theory that could be dismantled by future evidence. It's a little bit odd to me that you would, you would put all your trust in the idea that scientists will eventually find evidence as if, as if that is a foregone conclusion. Again, it is a massive assumption. And then with, with, other, with other people in the scientific community, you may get a different answer or a variation of answers. Sometimes you'll get someone that says something to the effect of, well, the evidence that macroevolution happened is because it must have happened. It's the only plausible explanation for how we got here in the first place. You'll have people in the scientific community, they'll say things like, there's no other natural explanation for this. And to that, I often say, you're right. There may not be another natural explanation. Maybe there's a supernatural explanation, but of course you can't say that. You have to prove it naturally. And again, you'll have people from the scientific community saying, 
the very fact that humans are here is the evidence that our explanation must be accurate. And to that, I respond by saying, what? Huh? <laughs> you see, what, what you get is chunks of the scientific community that are saying to us, yeah, we believe that there was a single cell, single cell organism that then, you know, that then, you know, evolved in a form of microevolution within its own kind, but then eventually that there was new genetic material spontaneously introducing itself into the gene pool to the point where it began to shift and mold and evolve into a completely different kind of living creature or different kind of organism altogether. And that over the course of millions and millions of years, there was all this macroevolution taking place. And again, you would say, why do you believe this if there's no evidence that it actually happened? And they would say, well, because there's no other theory that leads us here. Let me give you a, a somewhat silly illustration to just sort of try to help expose and illustrate the absurdity in this sort of way of thinking that we have in the minds of some people in the world of science. It's not all, but it's a significant chunk. Imagine you and your spouse walk into a restaurant and you see a friend of yours uh, sitting at a table there at the restaurant. And you and your spouse begin to speculate as to how he got there. Let's say this friend of yours doesn't have a driver's license and doesn't own a car. And then you would begin to speculate and say, well, I think that he, he, must, have, he must have walked here. And then your spouse would say, well, you know, it's, it's 20 miles away from his house. And it's, uh, you know, we live in Minnesota and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's 10 degrees outside. Um, and he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that likes to work out or run or walk a lot. Uh, I don't think it's plausible that he walked. It's kind of a long distance to walk. And uh, may, I, I have a theory that maybe someone drove him and you would say, no, 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 no. I don't believe that there's no way that someone drove him. I think he must have walked. And the spouse would say, well, why do you believe that? And, and then you would say, well, the only explanation is that he walked is because he's here. What do you mean? Like, well, I know there's no evidence that he walked. I know we can't prove that he walked. But but, th but the idea of someone else driving him just doesn't seem right. He must have walked. And the evidence that he walked is that he's sitting here in the restaurant. How else would he have gotten here? Of course he walked. And your spouse would say, but maybe there's a different explanation. You would, no, 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 no. But maybe someone drove him. No, I don't want to believe that someone drove him. That doesn't. There's no evidence for that. Well, maybe maybe there's maybe there's no evidence that someone drove him, but there's no evidence that he walked. You're making a large assumption. Shouldn't you at least examine both? And you might say, no, I don't want to believe that there was an intervention from another being. And that is, in essence, the type of thinking and reasoning going on. So you have a, a large chunk of the scientific community basing their rationales on foregone conclusions uh, irrational assumptions and theories that are not based on actual science are not being based upon actual trends that have been observed and tested and, and well-documented. That's not the case. And you've got chunks of circular reasoning and presuppositions. You've got this naturalistic assumption. The assumption is that there must be a natural explanation and my friends, I think all of this approach is a dangerous and erroneous way to approach science. There are actually several prominent scientists, evolutionists, biologists, paleontologists, 
throughout the last hundred years or so that have sort of made admissions saying that there's really no evidence for this whole theory of evolution. There is a common quote used by some creationists quoting a guy by the name of uh, Arthur Keith, but the quote is actually not from him. Um, The quote actually comes from a guy by the name of uh, DMS Watson. He was a a very well-known British zoologist, born in the late 1800s. He died, I believe, in the 1970s. In 1929, he was writing an article for a magazine or a periodical known as Nature. And here's what Watson said. He said, evolution itself is accepted by zoologists not because it has been observed to occur and not because it is supported by logically coherent arguments, but it has been accepted because it does fit all the facts of taxonomy and paleontology and geographic distribution, and because no alternative explanation is credible. Let me stop there before I read the rest of the quote. He's basically saying, listen, all the zoologists and the scientists that I work with, they embrace evolution, but they've actually never been able to observe it, and they really can't even prove it. Like, There's no logical, coherent, co- coherent argument that actually leads us to embrace evolution. He's saying that the theory of evolution does seem to fit with the facts related to taxonomy and paleontology and and the distribution of the fossil records. Um, so he's basically saying, as you study all the fossil records that are kind of spread out throughout the world, and you study, you know, sort of, you know, all the different species, and you're trying to figure out, like, where did they all come about? How did all these different species that are so complex, that have overlapping genetic information, but yet so unique to each species, like, how does it all come about? The theory of evolution sort of gives us a plausible explanation for these things. There's no actual evidence that leads us to believe evolution, but it's at least a theory that makes us feel like it makes us feel good. Like this, this could be true. We don't have an explanation for the fossil records, for taxonomy and paleontology, for the distribution uh, of all the, the fossils throughout the planet. We don't really have a good explanation for it, but this whole theory of evolution sort of gives us an explanation. We can sort of kind of grasp onto. That's the reason why it's been embraced. That's in essence what he's saying in the same article later in the same article. He says this, He says, the theory of evolution is a theory universally accepted by zoologists, not because it has been observed to occur and not because it can be proven by logical, coherent evidence, but because the only alternative, special creation, is clearly incredible. Okay, okay, let let me just say that. Let me just say that again. He is saying that the theory of evolution is being accepted not because it's been observed and not because it can be proved because it can't be. There's no evidence for it. But he's saying this, the reason why we embrace evolution is because there's only one alternative. That's this idea that that there's a special creator, that God created everything. And that is clearly not credible is what he is saying. Well, Mr. Watson has now passed on, but if he were alive sitting across the table from me today, I would say to him, why is it not credible? Like, if there's no evidence for the theory you're embracing, the theory that is universally accepted by zoologists and many other scientists, like, if there's no evidence for that, like, 
why would you dismiss mine? Like the only reason many scientists love evolution, the idea that humans came from a single cell or organism, the only reason that, that scientists run to that and flock to that is because, is, is, is really because of the idea that the other one is one they don't want to believe. They don't want to believe that there's a creator. They don't want to believe that there's a, 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 an intelligent designer or a God that they are accountable to a God that has more power than they are. People want to be in control of their own lives. People don't like giving up control. Therefore, they reject anything that's sort of outside of their own control. Or people don't want to be morally, morally responsible. In their heart of hearts, they don't want to be accountable. They want to be able to live their life on their own terms. They want to be able to sin. They want to be able to do whatever they want to do. The idea that there's a God infringes upon that Therefore, they flock to anything that leads them to believe that there's no God, or they flock to something that gives them a credible reason to reject God altogether. DMS Watson, I think, is incredibly honest when he says, we flock to evolution. We flock to the idea that humans were created outside of a creator, that humans came to be you know, apart from a God, simply because they don't view creation by a God as credible. Evolution in and of itself, or human evolution, you know, Mike, the, the macro evolution from single cell organism to human is, is a theory that is not substantiated or corroborated by any evidence anywhere in the world. There's a similar sentiment expressed by a guy named Sir Julian Huxley. He is the brother of the famous Huxley who wrote the book Brave New World. Uh, Huxley was a, a famous British scientist as well. Um, he said this about evolution. Uh, he says, I suppose the reason that we leapt at the origin of species was the idea of God interfering with our sexual mores or mores. I can't pronounce that word. I apologize. Basically, the idea of us being able to do what we want when it comes to meeting our sexual needs and fulfilling our sexual desires. The reason why we loved the idea that Darwin asserted in the 1800s about the origin of species, that humans evolved you know, from a single cell organism, that all humans and apes, we all come from a common ancestor. The idea that we evolved from nothing and became complex humans. The reason why we were so excited about this is because we didn't like the idea of God interfering with our lifestyle. We wanted to do whatever we want. We want to have sex with whatever, whoever we want. We don't want to be moral beings. We don't want to be accountable to God's morality. We want to have sex with whoever we want, and we want to fulfill our sexual desires in whatever way we see fit. And the fact that there's a God infringes upon that. So the reason why we got so excited about origin of species, the reason why we, we flock to the idea of macroevolution is because it gives us an excuse to live however we want. I think these are very honest men giving us very honest sentiments about evolution. Let me give you another quote from a guy named uh, Richard Lewontin or Lewontin. I've heard it pronounced both ways, but I'm pretty sure it's Lewontin. He, uh, he is in his 80s, but he, as, of the, as of recording this episode, he is still alive, still writing, still contributing, still winning awards. He is a, a world-renowned evolutionary biologist and mathematician. He's taught at places like Harvard, Columbia, University of Chicago, right? So not a dumb guy. Uh, he, he's been around a while. Let, let me read you a quote. 
that he said uh, a few years ago. He said this, evolutionists have a prior commitment, a commitment to naturalism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, we are forced by our adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and set concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, the materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Now, that was a long quote, but let, let me sort of break it down for you what he's actually saying here. He's saying we are committed as naturalists. He's saying that you know those people who, who are evolutionists, they are committed to the theory of naturalism, which is the idea that everything is natural. There's no supernatural. We'll dive into the concept of naturalism in more depth in a future episode. But he's saying we're committed to this, not because science demands it. Is that what he's saying? It's not like science demands that you have to be a naturalist in order to, you know, to explain the the trends and the phenomenons that we observe here on planet Earth. And he refers to the planet as this phenomenal world, which I would agree it is a phenomenal world, well designed. He's saying science doesn't demand this. Because on the contrary, you, you don't have to be a scientist or excuse me, you don't have to be a naturalist to be a good scientist. He goes, but we as evolutionists, we stick with naturalism because no matter how counterintuitive it may be, so he's saying it's counterintuitive. It, it actually doesn't make sense. It's, it's actually not what the facts or the evidence actually point to. No matter how counterintuitive it may be, and no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated, right? So, so people who are not in the world of science, People who are not vocational scientists, maybe they don't really know the expert, the, the, or they don't know the, the data as much as the experts do. To them, to the uninitiated, to the, you know, to the person that's sort of on the outside looking in, it's mystifying that so many of these scientists would would put so much stock in this theory that actually has no no science to back it up. It's this theory being taught as if it is fact when it actually is not. So he, he's readily admitting that it's counterintuitive to believe this. He's readily admitting that it seems mystifying. He, he's readily admitting you don't have to be a naturalist to be a good scientist. He, he's readily admitting that, that, in fact, you don't have to embrace naturalism to, to actually explain things within the world of science. But he, then he makes the final statement. He's, we're committed to materialism. We're committed to this idea of naturalism because we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Like He's basically saying we don't even want to allow a little bit of God in the door, so we have to stay deeply committed to naturalism because if, if we budge on it even a little bit, it, it'll allow people to start bringing God into the picture. And, and, and earlier in the quote, he says, like, you don't have to be committed to naturalism to be a good scientist. Like, there are areas of science where supernaturalism would be acceptable, but he just doesn't want to allow it even the door. Even if you even let it in a little bit, it'll come flooding in. So regardless of how absurd it is to embrace 
you know, evolutionary science, no matter how counterintuitive it is, no matter how mystifying, I'm going to paraphrase by saying, no matter how stupid it actually is, we remain committed to it because we refuse to allow God into the picture. That is, in essence, what he's saying. This is sort of shocking. Now, there's a lot of naturalists who sort of defend him and defend this statement. They say, well, the reason why he said this is the moment you allow natural, or excuse me, the moment you allow supernaturalism in, then people will stop looking for answers. You know, the, the idea that if people have supernaturalism as an excuse, that whenever they're confused about something in the world of science, they won't actually press to get the answers. They'll just say, well, I guess it's supernatural. I guess God did it. And they would somehow use that as a cop out. But this simply isn't true. There's lots of people throughout world history who were great scientists who looked for answers in the natural world and sought to do great scientific work, but yet they believed in God, or they believed in the Bible, or they embraced Christianity, or they believed in some form of supernatural realm, or they believed in a creator and an intelligent designer. Like There are lots and lots and lots of great scientists from world history who believed in a supernatural realm. They still did great work in the in the natural realm. They didn't abandon getting questions just because they believed in the supernatural. It's a silly presupposition. And the view that says we're going to remain committed to naturalism no matter what, that we're going to be committed to not allowing a divine foot in the door no matter what, quite frankly, could lead you to a wrong answer. Like, If you're willing to embrace something that is absurd or counterintuitive just because you don't want to give credence to a supernatural belief, I think it may lead you to some flawed conclusions. If that's you, if you refuse to embrace God or give the supernatural realm any credence and you would rather embrace something that is counterintuitive and absurd, I would say that maybe you ought to check your presupposition. Maybe you ought to check your 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 commitment to naturalism in that in that case. The bottom line is that they that there are many people from the scientific community, from great institutions like Harvard, that are willing to ignore the supernatural, even if in some cases it's actually the most rational thing to do. In many cases, it is more rational and makes more sense to embrace a supernatural reason for something. But people are willing to embrace things that are outright foolish rather than give any credence to supernatural. Friends, this is this is mind-boggling. This is absolutely absurd and it's shocking that so many people that are so intelligent are willing to do this. Let me give you another example. So a guy named Th- uh, Thomas Nagel. Uh, he was a famous author, uh, professor of philosophy and law at New York University. He, he basically he basically admitted recently that that the naturalists have sort of concocted this whole evolutionary thing, and he basically is kind of kind of kind of came to the conclusion that it's not plausible. He he actually admitted that it's it's not the most likely answer. And even gave credence to the idea that maybe it's, it's even absurd to believe in a in a macro evolution that that existed, and the fact that humans came on the scene outside of a creator. Um, but he says this, even though he denies the 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 credibility of this idea long term, uh, this macro evolution idea, he says I'm an evolutionist because I can't take the alternative. Like 
he was he was at a point where he was willing to deny naturalism, willing to say that that evolution itself, the the, the neo Darwinian view, is just simply something that is not accurate. But he can't imagine believing the other. Like he doesn't like religion, doesn't like faith, doesn't like spirituality. So he'd rather stick with the thing that he knows is absurd because he doesn't like the alternative. He actually wrote a book in 2012. It's it's called Mind and Cosmos. Here's the subtitle of his book. Right, this is an atheistic guy who, who, who part of the naturalistic world. He's a you know renowned philosopher and law professor. This is not a a Christian theist guy by any means. He wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos, and the subtitle of the book was Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Concept of Nature is Almost Certainly False. And he didn't just randomly publish this as a self-published or in some small publishing house. This was printed and published by Oxford University Press, right? Like, this is these are some smart peeps coming to the realization that this idea of Darwinian macroevolution is almost certainly false. It can't possibly be accurate because there's just no evidence for it. In fact, his book that came out in 2012 was nicknamed by some other naturalists and evolutionists as the most hated book of 2012. It's pretty funny, and obviously because they recognize the, the, you know, that he's sort of exposing their own argument. He's he's one of them, but he's he's showing the the cracks in the foundation of their argument. And, and Thomas Nagel publicly said that we should be potentially open to the idea of intelligent design. Another guy who was a British physician, a guy named Michael Denton, uh, he was a physician. He wrote he wrote an article for a periodical known as Biocomplexity in 2013. He was a naturalist. He was an atheist for many years, well-respected, renowned. But in 2013, he changed his mind. And he basically said we should be open to the idea of intelligent design. You know, he, he's not he's not converting to Christianity uh, he's just saying the Darwinian view has some major flaws to it. That maybe we ought to consider some additional perspectives. Maybe we ought to consider perspectives like intelligent design. Again, he's not saying he believes in the God of the Bible. He's just saying that maybe we ought to consider the fact that there was some supreme being involved in the mix. I think this is incredibly eye-opening that there are world-renowned experts in the area of evolutionary science and philosophy in naturalism coming to the conclusion saying, in all reality, many of us jump to this idea of evolution just because we don't like religion. We don't like the alternative, but they're all sort of coming to the realization or willing to acknowledge that there's actually not great evidence for what they currently espouse. If you're a Christian listening to this, I can give you, I want, I want you to have great comfort that God created human beings, that God specifically intervened on the, you know, the course of, of, you know, uh, history to, to create a special being called humans. We are his masterpiece. We did not evolve from a single cell organism. Now, there is a twist to this whole conversation, as, as I mentioned earlier in this episode. Uh, there is another perspective or another form of viewing uh, evolution, and that is the idea of theistic evolution. Um, this is not brand new, but it's new in the sense that there's a sort of a new segment of professing Christians that are pushing this, promoting this, and endorsing this. Uh, there is a significant segment of progressive Protestant Christians that have been endorsing this and promoting this. 
and there is a significant segment of of people in the scientific community uh, claiming to be Roman Catholic that are also promoting this and endorsing this. The theory that says that God used evolution, that God was guiding it and shepherding it to make sure that it that it led to the result he wanted uh, is a theory that I reject. And whenever I'm talking to someone that may espouse any ideology or theology that sounds like theistic evolution, I typically respond by saying, okay, you are saying that God used it, but I want to know how did God use it? What exactly did God do to use this process of evolution? And what evidence do you have that leads you to believe that? Are there any pieces of scientific evidence that would lead you to believe that? Are there any arguments from the world of philosophy or logic that would lead you to believe that? Are there any passages of scripture that would lead you to believe that? Please tell me, what did God do? How did he do it? And what is the evidence for that? And theistic evolutionist never seems to have an answer to this. I've listened to some YouTube videos. I've or watched some YouTube videos, listened to some podcasts, read some books, listened to debates. There's never a good answer. Like, I can't find one. If someone out there listening to this has a good one, a good resource for theistic evolution, email it to me, please. Hey Ortiz at theologyfortherestofus.com. But the reality is I haven't found one and I don't think there's one out there. I don't think there's any logical explanation to, to the question or logical answer to the question, how did God use theistic evolution? There's a famous apologist and writer, a guy named Greg Kokel. I'm a pretty big fan of a lot of his work. I don't agree with everything he says, um, but, but I like a lot of his work. Um, he uses the argument, he calls it the leprechaun argument. And he says this, um, imagine that someone um, does an experiment where they grab, you know, two different chemicals, they put them together, the chemicals bubble up, and they create a different chem- chemical altogether. Or they take elements, you know, you take hydrogen and oxygen, you put it together and it creates H2O, water, right? Um, and so he says the, 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 the secular evolutionist or the naturalist says that hydrogen and oxygen, they get together and it creates water. Well, the theistic evolutionist says hydrogen and oxygen, they're put together and there's a leprechaun there and he's making sure that it becomes water. Okay, then you would then the naturalist or the secular evolutionist, the Darwinian, could say to the theistic evolutionist, the the theistic evolutionist, the evolutionist who says that God guided evolution, would say, well, if we remove the leprechaun, would the would the hydrogen and the oxygen still morph together to become water? Well, the answer is yes. Well, then why do you need the leprechaun altogether? See, the naturalist would say, let's just remove the let's remove the leprechaun from the story. Why do we keep the leprechaun in the mix? You see, if God guided evolution, but you can't actually point to an exact moment, whether with scriptural evidence or scientific evidence, if you can't point to a particular component that proves that evolution was going along but would not have happened without God, then it's not evolution. It's not a supernatural thing. Like, like God creating the world, God creating the universe, God creating humanity is a supernatural event. It is not natural. Therefore, if your argument cannot plausibly be shown to be supernatural or there's a flaw to your argument in which 
your argument can be embraced by the naturalist, then it's no longer supernatural, right? If you say God led evolution, but the naturalist says, well, would evolution still have happened if you removed God? And you say, well, yeah, well, then it's not a God-led thing. It's just a natural thing. And in that case, you've removed God from the equation, right? If you're a theistic evolutionist asserting these things, you are, in essence, by default, without even realizing it, asserting theistic, or excuse me, you are accidentally asserting naturalistic or Darwinian macroevolution, you are, by default, removing God from the whole equation. Now, if the, the Darwinian or the naturalistic evolutionist comes to the theistic evolutionist and says, well, if we remove God from the equation, would it still have happened? And if the theistic, theistic evolution says, no, it would not, evolution needed God in order for God to, or in order for it to do what it's supposed to do, then the naturalistic evolutionist would say, well, do you have any scientific evidence for that? And you would say, well, well, no, I don't. Okay, well, so you have an argument that is no different than my own, right? The naturalistic person, the, the Darwinian evolutionist, has an argument with no evidence, and the theistic evolution now has an argument with no evidence. Now, the, the Christian who believes in creation, whether it's young earth or old earth, um, the, the Christian who believes in creation says to the, the theistic evolutionist, do you have any scripture that would lead you to believe what you believe? And if the theistic, if the theistic evolutionist is honest and rational, the answer is no. You have no scripture at all to cause you to believe that God led the process of evolution. There's no scientific evidence for it. There's no scriptural evidence for it. And it's just sort of logically inept and insufficient to say that God led evolution or he guided evolution and that evolution came to be because God brought it to being. I think that's a flawed view of how God created things. As I talked about in episode 247, and as I talked about earlier in this episode, there are multiple viable perspectives, multiple viable views on how God created. There's like the young earth view, and there's multiple old earth creationist views. But the idea that God utilized evolution, or that he led evolution to its final result, it is a thought process, again, that is just terribly inefficient and cannot be corroborated by any sort of evidence of any kind. So now let's answer the question. The question of this episode is, should Christians believe in evolution? Well, we should certainly believe in microevolution. I've talked about that extensively here in this episode. But we ought not believe in any form of macroevolution because there's no evidence for it, not from science, not from the scriptures. We should not believe that all creatures came from one single cell organism and we evolved from that over the course of time. We should not believe in the naturalistic form of macroevolution. And quite frankly, we should not believe in and not endorse a theistic form of evolution it's not compatible with the scriptures, and it's logically incoherent. We should not embrace that either. We should only embrace 
the theories and ideologies that are compatible with the scripture. And the scripture tells us this, that God created everything. God created the universe, the solar systems, the planets, the stars. He created earth and all of the living creatures on this earth. And he created humanity and he created humans uniquely from all the other animals on this planet. God created humans in his own image. And God did all of that for his own glory and his own purposes. We should make sure that any ideology or any theory that we embrace promotes that truth. God did all of it for his own purposes and his own glory. And we ought to reject any ideology or any theory that undermines the fact that God created everything. And we should reject any concept that refuses to acknowledge God's sovereignty over all of creation. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Sure hope it was helpful and insightful. If you have a question or a topic that you want me to address on the podcast, whether it's related to this episode or something completely different, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email. The address is heyortiz at theologyfortherestofus.com. Again, that's H-E-Y-O-R-T-I-Z at theologyfortherestofus.com. If you happen to have any pieces of evidence, articles, or books, anything you've read that you think is contrary to anything I have set forth here in this episode, I'd also love to hear from you. Shoot me an email to that same address or find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Kenneth Ortiz. That's K-E-N-N-E-T-H-O-R-T-I-Z. I'm Kenny Ortiz and this has been Theology for the Rest of Us.